everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And Allison is here with us once again. Hi, Allison. Hey, guys. So this week we decided to do our episode sort of based around psychiatric sort of things. The Bad Nurse story is very sad and has to do with mental illness. And so we kind of wanted to do a story, a, a news story and then also our good nurse story is going to be it's going to revolve around that as well first of all i just want to thank you guys so much for all the love you've been showing us lately because we have been popping up on some charts all across all across the world it's kind of crazy uh, we they recently kind of changed the way they were doing the whole charting system apple podcasted and we were kind of like well if, when they restructure all this we didn't know what was going to happen but you guys have really been showing off because we have been pretty consistently up in the top 30s in the documentary category, which is the category that we happen to fall under in Apple Podcasts. So that's a pretty big deal. And every time I check it, it and get an email, I'm just always so shocked to see that we consistently hang out in there. And then also we're show, we've got people listening in a lot of people in Canada. We are consistently charting in Canada, the United Kingdom and Australia and Norway and recently just popped into Mongolia. I'm not sure who is listening in Mongolia, but we appreciate you so much, whoever you are, because we actually hit number one for the episodes, like one of the episodes hit the number one spot. And we're just like, how is this happening? We're just so happy, though, just absolutely thrilled. And we appreciate you guys so much for being so loyal, because the reason that you get into those charts to begin with is because you have a very consistent loyal listenership because it's like the same people like subscribe a lot of people subscribe and they listen consistently every week so that's how we know you guys are amazing and we're just so happy and very very thankful so we will go ahead and start talking about this news story once again i'm just horrified at our sometimes things that our healthcare system or i don't know who to blame on this but this story is out of portland oregon so it says on a brisk 40 degree afternoon, two days before Thanksgiving, Portland police responded to a call from the city's psychiatric hospital. And when they got there, they found a man sitting on the ground in the ambulance bay. He was handcuffed and shivering. And he all he had on was a t-shirt and shorts in 40 degree weather. I'm just, I'm really getting absolutely sick of reading these stories. I mean, it's one thing about doing this podcast. Of course, you know, you're looking for stuff like this and it. I'm just horrified at how many of these stories are out there. What is going on, Allison? I don't know, but like you said, it's easy to find. This is not the first time that I've heard about a patient being discharged in the cold in thin clothing and just not prepared mm -hmm. for the elements. Right. So I think it is a popular thing that's happening. It's horrible. It makes me mad as well. And I think it's just because people don't know how to deal with, they don't have the patients or the staff or the time to deal with people that are mentally ill. Exactly. I, I feel like they're just pushing it off on somebody else, especially in this, this scenario. In this scenario, for sure. But I, I, yeah, exactly what you said. There's not enough staff. There's not enough resources. People don't know how to handle a situation like this. The security guard told the officers that the man had been released from the Unity Center for behavioral health, but that he wouldn't leave. So the guard told police that the man apparently had taken crystal meth and 
that he should go to detox. And then the officer, who's actually specially trained for crisis intervention, saw the man muttering unintelligibly, it says, and his, he and his partners didn't notice any signs of intoxication, but they actually realized the man was suffering a mental health crisis and told the guard that they couldn't take him to a detox clinic because they didn't feel like that's what he needed. And then the guard urged them to arrest the man for trespassing on hospital property and for harassing a therapist earlier. And so what this says is the scenario was exactly the type of problem identified earlier this year by the nonprofit Disability Rights in Oregon, describing how hospitals rely on police to arrest discharged patients for trespassing, criminalizing mental illness. And this is, we've talked about this so many times on the show. This is a, a cycle. So many people, the homeless, they're either homeless or they are in the hospital or they're in jail. And there's like this cycle that goes. So, and a lot of these people do suffer from mental illness. It's not always... Some people say, oh, they're on drugs. Well, the, sometimes the drugs or the alcohol is a means of coping with mental illness. It's not always – people just want to blame. I think people deal with this, like they cope with this issue because you feel so guilty that stuff like this happens by making it the person's fault. Oh, it's just, you know, it's their own fault. They take drugs. They, you know, they choose to do that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people do cope with street drugs. Their thinking's not clear. They don't keep regular appointments. They don't see a psychiatrist or their primary care physician. And so they don't have access to medication that would help with their illnesses. So they treat it with what they can get their hands on. And so that's drugs, that's alcohol. But what I thought was neat about this article was that it said that the police officers had training in crisis intervention. And so they were able to recognize, you know, hey, this, this guy really doesn't seem like he's needing detox. And the officer said that he, when he looked at the guy, you know, he was kind of down talking to him, that he said it looked like the guy just looked right through him. And so he didn't, didn't think that that was necessarily drug related, just he could tell that this man was having a crisis. I, I'm not sure, really. It's hard to know what the answer is to something like this because it's so complicated. If you if you go and look at that facility, is, is there staff? Are there enough people there to even handle a situation like that? The guard, is he just completely exhausted from situations like this happening all the time? Is he tired of seeing therapists being abused by by patients with mental illness. I mean, most people who suffer from mental illness are not violent, but it can happen, you know, that you can have altered mental status or you can have fits of outbursts or whatever. That, of course, that happens. And you just, it's kind of hard to know all of the details and all of the complexities that go into a situation like this. But I do know that we don't have enough resources for mental health issues in this country and certainly in the state that we live in. Yeah, well, I think the answer is that we need more facilities. We need more resources. How we get those, I don't know. I will say that our security, they are very good at identifying what patients are mentally ill and what patients are alert and oriented and are capable of making decisions. Where we work, I will say that our security department does a great job of distinguishing the difference between those patients. And, you know, just the other day, 
went into the hospital um, on Thanksgiving to deliver some pies. And there was a patient, I couldn't tell if he had been discharged from a floor or the ER, but he was there in the lobby similar situation you know he had a bag with him and there was some there was security there and they were there with him I was there for probably at least 30 minutes and they weren't arresting him I could hear them talking to him and they were trying to find him a ride trying to find him a place to go trying to help out that situation so I don't think that all security officers at all facilities are as trained as where we work and I think they're not all capable of dealing that situation with that situation that could have been the only security officer at that whole facility well that's true we don't know what those circumstances are yeah but luckily this guy had some heroes and the officers that did show up instead of just being like yeah this is a problem we'll we'll take him back to jail because he had just been released from jail 24 hours before this happened yeah it's so common that's exactly the problem. And they talked about it being a problem there in Oregon. It's a problem all over the country. It's just a problem. There's not enough resources. So there is this vicious cycle of, of mental health patients and people suffering from substance use disorder, a combination of the two, just this vicious cycle of going between homelessness and the hospital and to, to jail and this, you know, you get released from one and out to the other and it's just a mess. Well, we'll keep talking about stuff like this because I don't know what else to do other than to bring awareness about it and have people talking about it and maybe at some point something will be done. So we will get into our bad nurse story. So incredibly sad. This is the story of a surgical nurse. Her name is Marilyn Lamech. She was a surgical nurse, and she's actually married to an ER doctor. They lived in this really nice Victorian home. It was had, At the time, it had been built for like 127 years. It was a really, really neat house. And they lived near a college campus, so they think it was probably like the president of the college, like the president's house kind of thing It's at one point because it was just right across the street. The neighbors said that they would watch the three children growing up. And just he said it was just an obviously loving home. They He said the harshest discipline you ever saw coming out of the house was like a timeout, you know, an occasional timeout. They, you always saw one of the parents with the kids walking them to school and, and that sort of thing. Just a really nice home. So really shocking what ended up happening. But at some point within previous weeks before this happened, he's, he did say that he remembered thinking that David, uh, Marilyn's husband, the doctor, seemed like he was moving because he was taking a lot of things out of the house. And he noticed he saw less and less of the three children, and especially over the course of the past few days, he would usually see Nicholas outside playing with his friends, but realized he hadn't really seen him recently, and he thought that that was weird. So Marilyn actually had filed for divorce in April of 1997, and this happened in March of 1999. So a year or a couple of years before she filed for divorce, but then they had a reconciliation and she asked that the divorce case, divorce case was dismissed. And it was that same year. But then I guess things didn't, were still not going well. And that's just kind of how those things are. You know, you, I guess they're having trouble. They don't want to break up their family for the children. You don't want to take because you know you separate and then the children they don't have mom and dad both living under one roof and it just creates all these problems so the, the parents are just trying everything they possibly can so that sort of went on for a couple of years 
she filed it again for divorce in June of 1998, so about a year later. She said there was irreconcilable differences and that they were tearing the marriage apart. She asked for child support, and the paper said that she and her husband had been living under the same roof, but they had been living separately. And I've also heard of this happening. I would think, Allison, that this would be it would be really hard to do, especially if you if she's using words like tearing the marriage apart, I would imagine they're probably arguing. So, oh, how awful for these kids that they must be. No telling what in the world they're seeing. Right. And I think that it's easy to say if you're having trouble with your marriage, don't stay for the kids just to make it work. I can tell you from personal experience, that was my childhood. And I think it probably would have been better had my parents went their separate ways as seeing the child of that. But now that I'm a mom, I kind of see the other side. But my husband and I always joke, oh, if we give it, if we ever get a divorce, he'll just move to the basement because at this point, too much trouble to separate everything out. But but we have we have fully no intentions of ever doing that. But I think it is hard for people, especially, I mean, these kids were small. I think the oldest one was like seven or eight. Yeah. And that I think that's confusing for them, too, when they see mom and dad there. But they pick up on a lot more than we know. Oh, yeah. They pick up on interactions. They pick up on tones when people are fighting. They know that. And so I think a lot of people think they can hide it from their kids. or right. For sure. I mean, if you're unless you're an Academy Award winning actor, I don't know that you should lean on your acting skills to try to create some phony, happy home for your children because they know. Right. And so many times I've heard people say that their parents thought that they didn't know that it wasn't a good marriage growing up. Mm -hmm. And then they knew and then and they knew and the parents were like shocked yeah. Like, what do you, you know, I, we, what we do you never, mean? we never fought in front of you. We never did. They know. Yeah. We're not stupid. Mm -hmm. So on July 29th of that year, 1998, she filed papers with the court asking that she be given exclusive possession of the home. She wanted him to move out and she wanted to be able to stay there because living in the same house there was causing her serious episodes of stress, which have resulted in physical symptoms. So somehow she, she was getting so stressed out that she was having some sort of physical symptoms and she was asking basically the, for the judge to make him leave. And David thought that he did not want to be forced to move out. And he said he'd been making the, the mortgage payment. The mortgage payment was like $3,500 a month. And and he was saying, well, I'm the one that is making the payment. I'm sure you know, she was a, a nurse. She was educated. She was able to work, but she probably stayed home with the children. And this is another case of where, you know, when one person, and it's usually the woman, decides to stay at home because they want their child to have a loving home and they want they don't want their child to have to go to daycare or whatever and then the wife the or whoever it is it's usually the woman sacrifices 15 to 20 years because they're not working they're not in the workforce they're not building up their their career and moving up the ladder and increasing their salary they and so then all of a sudden, here it is 20 years and, you know, not in this case, but, in, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever it is into this marriage. And it looks like, well, the husband has been the one making the mortgage. Well, that's because she she couldn't work because she was taking care of the children. So I I don't necessarily like that argument, but I guess I understand in a in a in a dispute, you're going to say whatever you have to say to, in order to get your side. And he want he didn't want to have to leave the house for whatever reason. Right. And, and I agree. Everybody's going to say what they, whatever it is that they need to say 
to fight for their case. But I will say that she most likely wouldn't have been able to afford the mortgage. Exactly. Even with even getting alimony or child support or whatever. I mean, that's this was 20 years ago. Right. So, you know, I don't know what people made 20 years ago. But I don't I don't see her being able to take care of the house and provide for the children and, you know, daily things like food and clothes and, and stuff like that. And to me that sounds just toxic and this it's just terrible. But I don't I don't really know what the answer is. I mean, it's both of their home. I mean, they're what are you gonna do? So they went through a mediation process and they came to some agreements on child custody and visitation rights and they were supposed to appear in court again on February 25th of 1999, but neither of them showed up for some reason. And then on March 5th of 1999, a 911 call came in to the Napierville police at 11.08 a.m. And Marilyn said, my three kids are dead and I want to be dead too, but it didn't work. So during that eight-minute call... She said that she had not been drinking. The, the 911 operator asked if she'd been drinking. She said she had not. She said she did not have a weapon, but she did say she had taken medication. So when they got to her home, she shouted to them that she was upstairs. She was laying down. Her daughter was laying beside her, and the pol- police discovered her two sons in their bedrooms. The two boys were found in their own beds, and the girl was found, of course, beside her, and that looked like was most likely the the master bedroom where she was. So, I mean, it's just so sad. And the 911 call was an eight-minute call, and it just goes on and on of her going back and forth with the 911 operator. And when I read that call, like the, the call log to it, I was just so... I was thinking about what in the world is this dispatcher thinking? Because she, the first thing she said is my children are dead. So she tried to she tried to kill herself. She took some sort of like Ativan, like an over tried to overdose and then she's she slit her wrist and she woke up. This happened the day before and then she woke up. So what they said happened is that she the day before made a peanut butter sandwich on a bagel and gave it to the two youngest kids and they they she put sprinkled ativan like crushed up ativan on top of the peanut butter and the kids ate it and when they fell asleep she smothered them with a pillow then the oldest child was downstairs when this was going on and she had them had that child come up and this was nicholas and she did the same thing. She gave him something to eat that had the Ativan sprinkled on it, and then she smothered him. And then I guess she staged the bodies the way they were and then lay down and thought maybe that she was not going to wake up. But how horrible. How awful. Yeah. I can't imagine what kind of where she was in her thinking to make that decision and I don't know what's worse, you know, making the decision to kill your children and kill yourself or waking up afterwards and being like, I'm still here. You know, I think you and I have talked about this on another podcast that I did with you about suicide and people, and their multiple attempts and how just detrimental it is on them. And I just, this blows my mind. The idea that a mom could do this to her child. Yeah. I don't understand that, you know, and. I know that people have postpartum depression. I know that people just 
get depressed. I get it. Life happens and people go into some really dark places. I understand that. But I, I cannot put a reason behind this. I just don't. I don't understand. Yeah. they uh, Eight hours after the bodies were discovered, police formed a screen at the rear of the house while the, the bodies of the children were wheeled into a van. And she was then, of course, taken into custody after she was treated for her, uh, you know, because she had overdosed and she had cut her wrists. Then she was brought in before the, the judge. And she didn't say anything. She just stood there. Her lawyer spoke f- spoke for her and told the judge she was pleading not guilty to nine counts of first-degree murder. And her lawyer said that he was going to have her examined. So when she was examined by a psychiatrist, they determined that she he did not feel, the defense psychiatrist did not feel that she was fit to stand trial. So ultimately... A judge or jury, after considering evidence, has to determine whether she's fit to stand trial. It's not like you can just you just have them examined by a psychiatrist and that is the the final say. So they can have her evaluated, and and the prosecutor, as well, had her evaluated. But the judge and jury actually decides whether or not she's fit to stand trial. What they ended up doing is. They had her, David's new wife at this time, because he actually remarried not long after this happened because he had a girlfriend. They had been, even though he had been living in the house and then he, and he, and then he left, he did have a girlfriend. And this girlfriend, who then became his wife shortly after all this took place, testified in court that Marilyn would call her and basically, you know, just say things like you're you're not going to have him and, and just sort of things like that. But she wouldn't say who she was. And so the defense said that it really wasn't fair that she was allowed to testify because there was no way really to prove that it was coming from Marilyn. So the judge allowed her to get on the stand and testify that someone in a female voice called and said, you will never have him. So she was not allowed, and no one was allowed, no one on the prosecution's team, she was not allowed to say Marilyn's name. And I guess that's the judge's way to, of sort of keeping the jury from hearing this and saying, oh, well, they're saying that she definitely did this. He wanted to make it perfectly clear that it's not 100%. There's no proof that she did it, and yet it's obvious enough to everyone that that's who else would it have been so I guess he felt like he needed to leave the evidence in so the defense didn't think that was fair well and they 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 wouldn't you know because they're trying to do whatever they can to help out Marilyn but I don't well and that's true I I think that that's their job you know that's their job is yeah. to try to come up with anything and sometimes you just think some of the st- stretches that the defense, these defense attorneys have to make. Yeah. Did they not have caller ID? I mean, this this happened in 1999. In 1999, there was definitely caller ID. There was caller ID in the early 90s. So yeah, there was definitely caller ID in 1999. And you would think, you know... And, I mean, you would think they would still be able to mm-hmm. do like, to trace calls and 
stuff like that. I mean, I would think there would there would have been a way to prove. I know, or at least narrow down the number. You know, that was dialing or not dialing the the number that it was calling from. They said that they think she was either using a cell phone or uh, the fact that she was probably using a cell phone and then it was a really short call. Like she just called for just a few seconds and then hung up mm-hmm. and that that's the reason that they weren't able to trace it back to her. I don't know, but if it's one second, it comes up on your phone bill that right. somebody called. So I don't really get that. But And I remember back then I got my first cell phone around uh, two thousand ish it was 2000, 2001. And... My parents got like a big thing in the mail that showed every call I made. And it was like the number <laughs> I dialed. I think it had the time, how long the call was. <laughs> I mean, it was very detailed report. <laughs> You're like, wait, what the <laughs> <Yeah>. heck? <laughs> yeah. Invasion of privacy here. Right. So <laughs> I would think that they would have had access to something similar. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Know. I have to believe that she either made the phone call from like a phone booth or something like that to where they just couldn't trace it back. It's, mm. you know, you could, you could, there's things you can do or go into, you know, go into a store or something and make a phone call. So, and I guess they didn't have a way of tracing her or detecting her voice to say definitively that it was her and it wasn't recorded. So it's not like you could go back and listen to it. Right. So, the defense basically just said, well, she can't really assist in her defense because of her mental condi- condition. But under, and this was in Illinois, so under Illinois law, a person is presumed to be fit to stand trial. You are kind of like you're presumed innocent. You're presumed to be fit to stand trial in the state of Illinois. A person is not fit if she cannot understand the legal proceedings or co-op- or cooperate in his or her defense. So... If you're fit, everyone is fit to stand trial unless they can prove that you can't understand what's going on or cooperate and help in your own defense. And what they said is she was able to do both of those things. She could cooperate. She could tell what happened and anything that had to do with the case. She there was nothing keeping her from doing that. And she understood what was going on. She knew exactly what was going on. And they looked at it, the the prosecution looked at it like, you know, you're making these phone calls to your husband's girlfriend. And of course, they're assuming that it was her making the calls. So you are angry and hurt. And you did this out of vindictive revenge, out of hate to try to do the one thing that you knew would hurt him the most. So she she was so upset that her husband didn't want to live with her anymore, didn't want to be a part of their family, didn't, you know, didn't love her, whatever it was that she was thinking, that she didn't want to live anymore, but she could not stand the thought of the children staying there after she was gone. And then living with him and his new wife and it, it, just the thought of that was just unbearable to her. And that, to me, was so incredibly selfish. Just, I, I do, she was suffering from some sort of mental illness because she was taking medis- medications and this had been going on for a couple of years. So I don't doubt that she was having some problems with mental illness. 
But I do think that she had control of her actions and she knew exactly what she was doing. Right. Right. And we've talked about that before, too. Hurting your children to get to the other parent. And that's something that I just don't understand either. You know, and it frustrates me that when we talk about these stories, we are talking about, like, educated adults, like professionals that have invested a lot of time and money into their careers. And so you would expect these people to be on a higher level of thinking and a higher level of decision making. And then they do these crazy things. And I just don't, I don't know where it comes from. I just, I don't know. I don't either. She, during court, she really, she didn't really say a whole lot. She wasn't real animated. Toward the end, she was, the more uh, appearances that she made, she was seen talking with her lawyer for a few minutes um, inside the courtroom. And so her law, what her lawyer said, because, you know, people are like, oh, she's, she seems normal. She's, you can just see her standing there having a conversation. She doesn't seem like a quote crazy person in their mind and people's minds. And this was 20 years ago. We've definitely made a lot of progress in, in 20 years for as far as how people think about mental illness and understanding what it really is. But they're asking him, her, her attorney, you know, how, how is she? She seems to be fine. And he said, well, just because a person speaks to you and might even speak to you in what appears to, to be a lucid manner doesn't mean that they're speaking rationally. Doesn't mean that they're speaking in reality. The question is, what is she communicating? So, and you and I know that we have, we've got patients who will look right at us and you'll just think, well, y- you might even be under the impression that they're a hundred percent with it and know exactly what's going on. And they're completely alert and oriented in your, at some point in the conversation, they say something so off the wall that you're like, whoa, uh. yeah. <laughs> And That's you realize, yeah, you realize, okay, I get it. I'm talking because they can st- carry on a complete conversation that mm-hmm. sounds totally appropriate until they say something about the cat in the room or something. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, 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 okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I mean, that's just the that that is the reality of someone like that. And also just because she seems okay now, maybe she's on medication now. Maybe her medication was completely out of balance then. Maybe she had a, a, a break, but she's better now because she's being medicated I, and being treated. It's kind of hard to say. These, it's, it's not a cut and dried situation when it comes to, to mental health issues, for sure. So, yeah, there's, there is no black and white when it comes to, to mental illness in any of it. You know, whether it's the act itself, it's the you know, whatever led up to the decision to commit a crime or to hurt themselves. And then even I think with the, the law and the punishment and kind of what happened happens after, you know, that's none of that is black and white either. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think there are cases and situations where it's like, okay, this person committed murder. They intended to do it. So they should have this punishment. Right. But when it comes to people that have mental illness, 
we a lot of times we put them in jail, but that's not always probably where they should be. Mm-hmm. They, I think there are some that should definitely be spending their. Now I do. I think they should be released because they have a mental illness or they did whatever crime they did because of that. No, I think that they should still serve, serve time, serve a punishment, but not necessarily always in jail. I yeah. think that, you know, we should have more correctional facilities that are for people with mental illness. Oh, absolutely. It, to I, get them the, the appropriate care that they need. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, because a lot of times they're get, they're going to be in there for a long time. They might be serving life sentences or 10, 20, 30 years. And it's not going to make anything better when you put mentally ill people in a um, in a correctional facility with all these other people they're going to continue to get, even if they're on medicine you know they're not they're probably not getting the counseling or therapy that they might need and you know who's to say that they don't go on and do other things while they're in you know while they're in custody mm-hmm. it's just yeah, that's the we unfortunate just, thing is there's it's you have to protect society. You can't leave everyone at risk. But at the same time, it's not really fair to put someone who is mentally ill, who's suffering from mental illness into a prison full uh, full of people who maybe did what they did, um, you know, deliberately and knew exactly what they were doing. And, and I don't really think anybody knows where Maryland falls in that because some people have said that she that there's no way she could have been this wonderful, doting, perfect mother for all these years and then turn around and do this to her children only based on revenge to her husband. Like it's it's inconsistent with the, the kind of mother that she was. And so, but then others say, well, her anger and how she felt about her husband was just stronger than the love that she had for her children. And she's somehow justified in her mind doing what she did. So it's, there, it's impossible really to know. They did convict her, however, of, of murder. And the judge sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he said that he wanted her to ponder her terrible acts for the rest of her days. He said that it's appropriate that every day as you look at the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the bars, you will see the faces of these young children and hear these young voices asking you, why, mom? We loved you, mom. Why did you do this to us? And he did add that he would order psychiatric services for her. So you will always maintain the capacity to understand the horror of your crime. So I don't really, the fact that he would say that to me, it almost sounds like the judge felt like she was mentally ill and that he didn't care. I don't, it's kind of hard for me to understand that. It's kind of like saying, I know you're mentally ill and that's why you did what you did, but I want to give you medicine and treatment to help you get better just so that just to torture you further mentally so that you can always remember and have the ability to understand. I I don't understand that remark. (laughs) Yeah. I was shocked when I read that. I was like, he really said that to her, 
there's emotion there. You know, when he's like, I want you to look at the walls and the yeah. ceiling and the bars. I want you to wake up every single day and remember yeah. what you did, you know, and like she wouldn't. I mean, I'm a mom. You're a mom. If we did something like that, we would wake up every day and remember that. I'm sure there's been something that your children have done small. River fell off the couch at four months old because I didn't know he could roll over. I remember that. And he's almost nine. And, you know, we're all okay from that. But you remember as a mom, you remember little things like that that felt big at the time but are probably insignificant. So she will, whether he wants her to or not, she's going to wake up every day and live with it. So oh, yeah. that alone is punishment enough. Whether you whether you put me in jail or not, waking up and knowing that I didn't have my children and that they were not here because of what I did, that would be punishment enough. So that was a pretty pretty intense statement to make yeah. for a judge to make. I know. I really I didn't really understand it. I, and this was I mean it was twenty years ago, so we have hopefully come a lot farther than that. And understanding mental illness, her husband, at the end of a trial, they sometimes or will allow family to do victim in, impact statements. Her husband took a moment to describe the children, and he said before he had introduced each child, he said, "Let me, let me tell you a little bit about," and then each of the children. So let me tell you a little bit about Nicholas. He said he was his oldest child. He was a good student who loved to learn and dress up as a policeman or secret agent. And then he said, let me tell you a little bit about Emily. She was a budding artist, he said. And his younger son, Thomas, is the happiest child. He said he's the happiest child I've known. The, his greatest thrill, I think, was every day. So I guess that's the end of our story. It was just so incredibly sad. And she's to this day still sitting in prison. She yeah, was 40, what, 40, 44 at the time? So she's in her 60s now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very tragic. Hey, Q, we're in a commercial, so we got to talk fast. Let's do it. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this question, but have you ever signed up for a travel nurse agency and immediately regretted it when you started getting all those texts and emails? Sadly, Tina, yes, I have. Okay. Well, Trusted Health is a nurse travel agency that's going to change all of that. They make it simple and fast to go online and sign up, and then you immediately start seeing job opportunities that are tailored to your interests, and you can even see the pay. Sounds too good to be true, Tina. Well, the best part is there are no recruiters, no unwanted emails, and no unwanted text messages. No recruiters? Tina, I'm going to need some help. Where are we going to go if we have all these questions? Right, right. Well, they do have nurse advocates who are there to answer any questions. They'll help guide you through the process, but they're not commission-based, so they're not going to try to pressure you into taking a job that you don't want. Cool beans, cool beans. Well, tell them where to sign up because we're running out of time here. Okay, right, right. So, you guys, if you're even a little curious about travel nursing and you want to help support our little podcast here at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, please go to www.trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and follow the steps to completing the sign-up process. It's real important that you complete the whole process for us to get credit, and we would really appreciate the support. Remember to be sure and put forward slash good nurse at the end of the URL when you go to their website so they'll know we sent you there. Trusted Health, they're not just an agency, they're a movement. So that will bring us to our good nurse story. And I wanted to talk about 
a nurse who's really accomplished a lot in the in the field of mental health. So I was looking at that and just kind of looking at the, the different nurses who've done things. And I was like, I remember Dorothea Dix. I learned about her in nursing school. So we could go, we could go all the way back and talk about her. Why not? She was early 19th century activist. She drastically changed the medical field during her lifetime. She made a lot of accomplishments. She was, she championed causes for mental illness, for indigenous populations. Of course, they sometimes go hand in hand, not always, and openly challenged 19th century notions of reform and illness. She sounds like she was kind of ahead of uh, her time a little bit. I mean, we're talking about 20 years ago and saying <laughs> that that we hadn't come very far just 20 years ago. This is over 100 years ago. So she was born in Hampton, Maine in 1802. And uh, we don't know a whole lot about her childhood, but we think that her parents suffered from alcoholism and that her father was abusive. And I think sometimes, and okay, <laughs> I've had I've, ha- I've gotten my hand slapped a little bit when talking about mental health issue, issues on the show because people get sensitive when you start talking about these things. And so if I say something that's offensive, I'm really sorry. I don't ever mean to do that. But one time we, and I don't remember who my co-host was, but we were talking about mental illness and we kind of joked around about a little bit about how providers who go into mental illness, who go into mental health, like psychiatrists or psychologists or even nurses who go into, you know, psychiatric nursing do that because they suffer from some sort of mental health issues themselves. And that's just, that's sort of a stereotype. And it's definitely something that it's something that people joke around about. And even people in the mental health field, anyone that I know who's in that field kind of will make a joke like that. And so, but at the same time, I definitely don't want to promote stereotypes and I don't think that it's healthy to do that. But that being said, I think that it's not uncommon for people who have suffered some sort of loss, tragedy, illness in some way for it to spark an interest for them to go into that as a career at some point later on. I think we've talked about, you know, people who had, who were ill as a child and grew up to be a cardiologist who had heart problems growing up, or they were in a hospital with lung issues and they grew up to be a nurse. So they, because you, when you are experiencing that, sometimes you think, wow, this is really an injustice, or I I really want to do something about this. Maybe, maybe you were in foster care and you had to deal a lot with social workers and you either saw that there was a need for more social workers or for better social workers. And so you grew up to be a social worker or, so I don't think it's uncommon for our experiences to spark an interest in our career choices, but I definitely don't want to uh, be promoting stereotypes for sure. But it sounds like that one of the very first nurses who dealt with mental health issues, probably from what we know, maybe had some some experience with seeing family members that were dealing with, with, with things like that. And she moved to Boston. I don't know what it is about Boston. Every time I turn around, I'm talking about Boston. I don't <laughs> know why. I swear I don't. I, I find them all the time. I'm like, I'm not sure what's going on in Boston. It's a big city. I know that. It pops up all the time, but she she did go to school in Boston and was a tutor. 
she became ill several times, couldn't teach. And one time while she was sick, one of her doctors said that she suggested she spend some time in Europe. So while she was visiting, she met with a group of reformers that wanted to change the way mental people who were suffering from mental illness were cared for. So then when she came back to the United States, it sort of sparked an interest in her to tour hospitals across the country. And she would report her findings to politicians and push states to care for the unfortunate. And even though a lot of politicians disagreed with her work, she just kept going and eventually established asylums in New Jersey, North Carolina, and Illinois. She worked to pass federal legislation that would create a national asylum, through the, uh, even though the bill didn't pass, and then toured overseas, reporting on the conditions of hospitals in various countries. So she just did a lot of work trying to make a difference. And so I, I feel like this, uh, she's really a, just a really neat person because not a lot of people have the fortitude that it takes to actually follow through. You know, a, a lot of people maybe have good intentions, but it's one thing to want to, to make a change, want to make a difference, but it's a whole other thing to actually be able to do that. Yeah. And she, you know, she was, this is in a time where women weren't as were held mm-hmm. to, they weren't quite as respected. And so to be a woman and to be touring these hospitals and giving your opinion to politicians um, and standing your ground when they didn't want to hear it and you kept telling them anyway, you know, and I even read that when she went on to work in the Civil War that doctors, you know, she was, she was the superintendent of army nurses for the Union Army and doctors weren't happy about having a female nurse. Hmm. They didn't like it, but she kept doing it. She pushed on. She took care of Union soldiers. She took care of everybody and she was pushing for higher standards for other nurses that were in her army and pushed for training just she really kind of was a trailblazer i think for our career path it said that she appointed more than three thousand of the army nurses so herself she appointed them you know i mean i don't know that i've in Six years as a manager, I I haven't hired, you know, 3,000 people. Maybe, like, if you combined every single person ever, like, secretaries and, you know, techs and RNs and everything. But, I mean, that's, it's very impressive. Oh, I agree. She she did so, so much, not only in working to try to make uh, change, but she also raised funds for building monuments to honor honor deceased soldiers. And she continued to fight for social reform all throughout her life. And her work in uh, support of better care for the mentally ill culminated in the restructuring of many hospitals, both in the United States and abroad. So, and this, this article is from womenhistory.org. And I just think that's really cool. And I think it's good to highlight and remember uh, people from even a long time ago because what she has done sort of paved the way for for any progress that we have now so i guess that does it for 
this episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Thank you, Allison, for coming on the show again. You're welcome. I always have so much fun when I come on here. <laughs> well, you guys go on to Instagram and Facebook and tell us hello. Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Instagram and GNBN Podcast on Facebook. You can find us on the web at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can send me emails and let me know if you have any stories that you'd like us to tell. Uh, you guys have been sending some really good stories. I really appreciate it. I'm trying to make a little database of them. So thank you guys so much. We appreciate you listening and appreciate you sub- all your support and encouraging words. And we want you to always remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Good nurse.